Ciao a tutti e grazie mia per aver reso di nuovo The Way It Is podcast fantastico. Hello everyone and thanks so much for making The Way It Is podcast great again. Not that it wasn't ever great, but it sounded like such a great way to greet you today. Uh, and as you can see, the Italian marches on. The Italian lessons, not necessarily the Italians, but we'll be visiting Italy to check in on them at some point. It is the 8th of May, 2020. This is episode number seven. Welcome. Thanks everybody who's been supporting and sharing and rating and reviewing. It's much appreciated. Uh, we're going to actually add a little bit of feedback. If you have anything you want to say, you can just email me directly at bobby, B-O-B-B-Y, at apexfeline.com. That's bobby at apexfeline.com. A couple people have had requests and suggestions and things like that. And all I'll ask of you is if you like it, just share it to someone. Email the link to someone that you like or family or friends or employees. Make them all listen to it before they come back to work. And if you don't like it, Send it to people you don't like. Mm. Now, sorry they eat in front of you, but my wife just brought in the most amazing homemade potato chips. And they are just piping hot, salty, crisp, absolutely amazeballs. So um, I just had to share the goodness with you because I didn't want to keep it to myself. So, hey, today... Beautiful sunny day. You wouldn't think it's, you know, late autumn, early winter. Not a cloud in the sky. Nice and sunny. 18 degrees, which is about 63 or 64 Fahrenheit. Absolutely stunning day. And here in Victoria, under the Unterschaufuhrer, Daniel Andrews, we might be getting out of lockdown this coming Monday. No, not on Mother's Day on Sunday. Why would he possibly do that? Why would he possibly let people spend time with their families and their moms on, you know, the biggest day of the year for moms, by and large? Um, because he's a moron. But, allegedly, we will be getting out this Monday. But you can kind of feel it in the air here. My wife and I have been walking all along. You know, we take our morning and now actually afternoon, the double double walk, and there's a hive of activity going on. Uh, there's a big project called The Block, which is a uh, major TV serial here where they uh, bring in some houses and renovate them, or they renovate a hotel and turn it into houses. Five different residences and amateurs put it together. It's huge here, and it's a fantastic reality show because it's just normal people who generally aren't builders building homes and supervised by top people. And it's very fun and entertaining. And the houses are usually stunning. And then they auction them. And the winners, the people that, you know, sell their house for more than what the reserve is, get to keep that. And so the person that gets the biggest reserve has the biggest bonus, also wins like another half a million dollars or something like that. So it's quite massive. And they are doing it just down the street from us in Brighton, Victoria. And they had to stop production, filming, and construction because of the uh, virus lockdown. So we just saw the cars back there again this uh, past couple of days and the stars there and a couple of TV personalities down here, Scotty Cam, Neil Whit Whitaker. It's all getting ramped up again. So um, love is in the air, as they say. So we've got a wild and woolly show for you today. We've got a, some amazing stories. We've got downtown Lower 4th Street. Francis Canteen Porn Stories from Sioux City, Iowa. We've got one of my favorite, favorite, favorite stories. Uh, for those of you that saw the film Dallas Buyers Club, if you haven't seen it, you should see it. It's one of the best films uh, made in the past 10 years, 100%, with Matthew McConaughey, who won the Oscar for Best Actor. And it is a story about how one of the producers, Cassie and Elwes, got the money in three days when the whole thing was just about to fall apart. Now, even if you're not in the movie business, and I know most of you might not be, it is a testament to perseverance and belief 
and not looking down, just only looking at the goal line, which will apply to you whatever you're doing, whether you know you're a housewife or an accountant or a movie star. To be successful, you got to have goals. I'm big on that. You know that. And uh, that's an amazing story. And also another kind of Hollywood-related story. Some of you may have seen the trailer for the new Tom Hardy film about Al Capone that's going to be coming out uh, probably in a couple of months. They just dropped the first trailer the other day. Well, the story of how that came to be from a waiter in a New York restaurant who was near suicide some years ago. Just amazing stories there. And we're all going to have our regular features, of course, in Mystic Medusa. We've just come out of a huge, huge Scorpio full moon. Many of you probably would have felt it, um, still licking your wounds from some big argument with someone in the house, and we're coming into Jupiter retrograde next week. And the key is, don't say yes when you mean no. And don't say no when you mean yes. Just consult and honor your inner voice. And we're going to talk about some great train wrecks, the Wuhan virus implications around the world, what's happening there, and uh, some quite unusual stories that have kind of jumped out of the ground like like bamboo, like bamboo, uh, which means that they've been brewing and brewing and brewing for a long time and now have just made themselves known to the public. As you might know, if you are a bamboophile, bamboo grows for months and months and years and years under the ground. And then as soon as it breaks through the surface, it can it can grow like 30 feet in just like a matter of a month, which is why it was a fantastic torture device in Vietnam. The It would tie the captured U.S. soldiers down and put bamboo underneath them and sharpen it and let it grow slowly. Now, that probably made your morning breakfast, didn't didn't it? Well, just letting you know, you know, the I love Vietnamese food, but I've also seen the deer hunter. And there's a good side to everyone, and there's a bad side to everyone. I didn't go to Vietnam. I actually was five days from, from going to Vietnam. Some of you may know from previous stories, but I'd gotten drafted and I had tried for every possible deferment. We had a doctor back in Sioux City named Dr. Dimsdale. I'm sure he's long gone. And he wrote like 75 pages of things that were wrong with me that I couldn't possibly serve. And above and beyond, you know, being blind, uh, minus five, eye prescription, flat feet, um, you know, and every and everything else. But it, it, it didn't happen. They were taking everyone at the height of the Vietnam. And my lottery number was 39 in 1971. 39. The only thing I'd ever really won in quite a while. I never won the cakewalk at the Hadassah Bazaar. Never won the cakewalk. I always felt that was fixed. Kind of a Spygate conspiracy, Pizzagate theory there. But I did win the lottery. But, of course, at the Paris Peace Talks with the Henry Kissinger... And uh, Nixon and everything, the end of the war, the draft was canceled, retroactive to my date. So five days before I was supposed to ship out, I got a reprieve. That's as close as I ever got. Although, I'm kind of intrigued now after having seen like Full Metal Jacket and stuff. I think the boot camp would have been good for me because I had no no discipline. And uh, I think the boot camp would have been really good for me. I'm the guy that ate all the donuts I'm the guy that ate all the donuts in Full Metal Jacket, who regrettably turned the gun on himself after killing Lee Ermey, his drill sergeant. So that could have happened, too. I probably would have been a little more, you know, friendly towards Vietnamese, if Vietnamese, the Viet Cong, if they kept John McCain and John Kerry and didn't let him come back. That would have been a win. And I hope you enjoyed last week's show, which was dramatically shorter than the week before. And I am going to endeavor to keep these in at about the 40-minute mark. But you've got all the information now. So if you think, you know, that I'm going way too long, just email and go, it's too fucking long, Bobby. Or, you know, maybe I'm getting too short. You're going, Bobby, what happened to those great long stories? Please make it four hours. Make it nine hours for Carol so she can have a long walk. Whatever. You, you know the drill. Now, if you've seen Dallas Buyers Club... You probably know, especially if you're a bit of a cinephile, that Matthew McConaughey was a pretty big star for a while 
and then disappeared off the map. Absolutely disappeared off the map because he was more, I guess, obsessed with playing the bongos and smoking dope and being cast in absolutely horrific films like Failure to Launch, if there was ever an aptly named film, Failure to Launch and stuff like that. So he had kind of disappeared off the planet, going from the multi-mega-million dollar good-looking cool guy to, you know, the lunch that nobody picks up off the sidewalk. So when he got cast for Dallas Buyers Club, he kind of was a nobody at that point. But this goes back almost 20 years, back to 2001. And there's a fantastic producer named Cassian Elways who had just finished working on Monsters Ball with director Mark Forster. Uh, another great film, fantastic film, which um, Billy Bob Thornton and, and Halle Berry... Uh, Halle Berry won the Best Actress Award at the Academy Awards that year. Amazing film. Anyway, Mark Forster had told Cassie and Elway, kind of the subject of this whole thing, that he had just found a script called The Dallas Buyers Club that he just absolutely loved. And Brad Pitt was attached to it, and there was a lot of big agents involved, and it was going to be a huge film. And um, it was just something that Cassie and Elway wanted to be involved in. And... Just, just felt that it was always going to be something very special. And anyway, a couple of years later, Elwes was working with Matthew McConaughey just after he was coming out of, you know, his failure to launch period on a film called The Paperboy with Matthew Broderick, or with uh, John Cusack, I think. It wasn't that great a film, but it wasn't all that bad. Anyway, he asked McConaughey what he was going to do next, and he said he just attached himself to a project called The Dallas Buyers Club. He said he's just crazy about it. And Elwes is just, oh, my God, this film's going to get made. He wants to be a part of it. Something about Hollywood that when you get a a vision of a project that you just want to be in it, you want to be attached to it, you you don't want this thing to, to get away from you. And um, McConaughey's uh, people at the time said, yeah, they just got a director to do the film, a fellow named Jean-Marc Vallée, who was developing another picture. And uh, he's a big star up in Canada, and we're setting it up in Canada, and we can get the money from Telefilm and a foreign sales company and tax credits. Anyway, they're going to make the film with this up-and-coming director for about $8 million. And Elvis was just shocked. Well, it uh, looked like it was happening, and it wasn't going to happen with him. And so about a year later, and this was in 2013, uh, I think, he was doing The Butler, and a young agent came up to him and said, oh, Cassian, you can't believe what happened. All that Canadian money for Dallas, Bu for Dallas Buyers Club fell through. And this happens all the time. I've had this happen to me many times over the years. I've lamented the money just goes away. Someone changes their mind. Someone dies in a plane wreck. Someone, you know, gets talked out of it, whatever. But the problem is Matthew McConaughey had already lost 35 pounds of the 47 pounds that he had to lose for the role. And then he's got to gain it all right back because he's got this TV series called True Detective happening in January. Now, Matthew McConaughey had just finished Mud and The Lincoln Lawyer, which were really coming out in release around 2012, 2013. And so he was starting to build himself back on. And by the way, Mud and The Lincoln Lawyer are fantastic films. Anyway, the doctor had said to McConaughey, you can't put the weight back on and lose it again. And, you know, it's just too dangerous. You've been in that position before. And Elvis said, well, when's the film supposed to start shooting? And the, uh, the agent checked with um, his boss and said, listen, save the movie, Cassian. This is, you always wanted to be part of this movie. Now is your chance. Save this movie. Well, how much time do we have? When's it going to start shooting? Well, today's Tuesday, and realistically, we have to be in prep on Monday. So I guess you have three days in the weekend. Three days in the weekend, yes. And he hung up the phone. You know, normally these things take months and years to get the money, to get pre-sales and bank loans and distributors. I'm not going to go into the details, especially for those of you not in the industry. But suffice to say, it's like building a house. You're ready to break ground. All the money falls out three days in a weekend before you're supposed to build the house and everybody's going to show up, all the builders and excavators and carpenters and concreters and everything, and you got no money. So Elwes said, 
I stared at the ceiling in my office for 20 minutes. I kept thinking, oh, this is something special. If I didn't do it now, this film would go back in the hibernation and it would probably never, ever happen again. I'd never get another shot at it. So I kept thinking, who really owes me in this business? And then it hit him way back in 1994, like 20 years earlier, William Morris Agency had approached him out of the blue to run their film department. And he needed the money and he made a deal quickly. And um, he got stuck on one last point. He says, when I go to the Cannes Film Festival, I always stay at the Hotel du Cap. The Hotel du Cap, it's like a zillion dollars a night. It's one of the top 10 hotels in the entire world. It is amazing. And, uh, you know, his new boss said, well, we all stay at the Carlton. And that's where you'll be staying. And the Carlton's a great hotel. It's on the strip there. That's actually where Elton John filmed I'm Still Standing, uh, that video. But it ain't the Hotel de Cap. And his boss said, nope, absolutely not. Um, you got to stay at the Carlton. And Casanova said, no, the reason you're hiring me is to get you into independent films and all the players, like a George Clooney, a Tom Cruise, a Robert De Niro, um, you know, everyone, they all stay there. I absolutely insist I must stay there too. Well, he eventually finally talked him into it and he called the hotel. And they said, oh, we're so sorry, Mr. Elwes, but we never heard back from you and we gave the room away. Sorry, nothing we can do. We promise you, you get it back next year, but this year is impossible. So cut to the third night that he's lying in bed at a hotel he doesn't want to be at, wide awake, 3 a.m., and he decides to read to put himself to sleep. Bear with me. This is an amazing story. So he's unhappy. He's in Cannes. He's not the hotel he wants, which makes you feel like you're sleeping in a toilet. And he goes over to the pile of scripts by the TV and looks through it. And in the, in the middle, um, you know, there's lots of scripts, lots of scripts. He's trying to decide which one to read. And then there's suddenly there's this like this sound from the door. And he looks in a yellow manila envelope slides under the door. And he opens it up. It's a script. It looks, it looks like it's been Xerox like 8,000 times. And handwritten at the top, it says, Dear Mr. Elwes, please read my script if you can. And if you like it, call the number below. So that sounded a bit serendipitous. They picked it up, got in bed, read the script. And it was a futuristic action story, kind of a, a looper before looper, he said. And the next morning he had breakfast with a couple of TV producers. And they said, listen, we want to get in the business with you, Cassian, and we really want to find a movie to do with Dolph Lundgren. Remember Dolph Lundgren, the evil Russian from the Rocky film? They said, what do you have? And he pitched them the script he read in bed last night. He didn't even know who wrote it. He said, I absolutely love it. And this is perfect for Dolph Lundgren. And they go, what do you want for it? And he says, $100,000. And they say, well, who's the writer? And he says, does it matter? Do you want the project or not? Do you want me to pitch it to other people? And of course, fear of loss, Hollywood. They go, oh, no, 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 no. We'll, we have a deal. We'll shake hands. Now, Elwes is thinking, fuck. Now I got to go back up to the room and figure out who the heck wrote this script that I just sold and, and figure out if this is a deal. And so he calls the French number at the bottom of the page and a little French voice answers, yes. He goes, hi, this is Cassie and Elwes and I'm a, an agent from William Morris. Oh, I know who you are. Listen, I read your script, and I'd like to talk to you about it. Great. Where? Well, come to the Carlton lobby at midnight. At midnight. Because that's when all the deals are done in bars and lobbies at Cannes Film Festival. So this little French guy comes to the Carlton lobby at midnight, sits down with Cassian Elways, finds out that he's just a kid, He's in college at the, at, the, at the time. He'd taken a summer job working at Euro Disney, figuring that the way to get in the film business was maybe working at Disney, but all they had him doing was cleaning toilets. So he snuck away for the weekend, took the train up from Paris, bought, brought 40 copies of the script with him, and got the names of producers and agents, and went door to door to every hotel on the Quasette and begged the concierges to slip it under their doors, giving them like five euro notes or 10 euro notes. Now, if you've ever been the can or, you know, most French concierges, they would have said, oh, yes, merci, and taken the money and then shit can the script. They would have destroyed it. They, they weren't going to do that. 
But somehow that that concierge at that hotel shoved it under Cassie and Elway's door. And Cassie and Elway's was staying at that hotel where he did not want to be staying at. And he couldn't get to sleep. So he read that script to go to sleep. And now he was sitting here with Nick Chartier. So he said, Nick, where are you staying? Well, actually, I'm sleeping in a sleeping bag on the beach in front of the hotel. Well, what, what phone number is that? Oh, it's a pay phone on the beach. And I've been sitting by it for the last two days waiting for someone to call me. I said, well, I just sold your script for $100,000. And he goes, what? And he immediately burst into tears. He took the money, came to California, and of course, the film was never made. And when the money ran out, little Nick Chartier took a job working for a fellow who ran a foreign sales company called Myriad. And within five years, he rose to partner, and then he left and set up his own sales company called Voltage. Now, Voltage, in 2010, won the Oscar for The Hurt Locker, which is also one of my absolute favorite films. And proof that a woman can direct. Oh, whack. So fast forward 20 years, Cassie and Elway's thinking, what's who is the one person who owes me in this business? And he calls up Nick Chartier. After all these years, he says, Nick, what about Dallas Buyers Club? Oh, no, Cassie, and don't start with me on that. Laura has already been on the, uh, Laura's the one that's the producer that's been trying to chase all the money since they lost it. Laura's been on the phone with me for the last three days. I don't want to do this film. Be very, very difficult to sell a movie about this subject, you know, AIDS and dying people and Matthew McConaughey. And, uh, 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 no, Cassian, please, the market isn't there for it. And Elwes says, Nick, do you remember all those many, many years ago that night we met in Cannes? Sure. And in all those years since then, have I ever asked you for anything? No. Well, I'm going to ask you one time only. I want you to put up the $3 million for the foreign rights to Dallas Buyers Club. I will never, ever ask you for anything ever again. This is the one. This is the one favor I'm calling in. And Nicholas said, and when do you need the money? He goes, tonight. Well, it turns out that they each did each other a favor. The rest of the money came from a group called Truth, which came in on the back end. And that next year, Cassie and Elwes, Nick Chartier, and Matthew McConaughey were the three guys who walked on the red carpet as Matthew McConaughey won the Best Actor. And it all came to fruition because a little French kid made 40 copies of a script and camped on the beach by a payphone in front of the hotel where Cassian always was, where he wasn't supposed to be, and read the script and sold it to Dolph Lundgren's people. And the guy that bought it was able to save the film. And that's what I love about this business. Because with one phone call, one text, one email, one drink, one happenstance opportunity, your life can change. And that of everyone else, the thousands of people who are involved on the project too. And I just love that story. It's one of my favorite. And I thought you would too. It was originally published in a Hollywood online rag called The Rap. And I've told that story at seminars around the world, in London, in Paris, Munich, all over the U.S., all over Australia. And I, I just never get tired of it, and people never get tired of it, because it is the hope against hope against hope success story. And um, it reminds me of Billy Wilder's famous quote, Billy Wilder, who directed Sunset Boulevard and Some Like It Hot and things like that. His famous, famous quote is, Be ready yesterday. I love that. So if you're looking for something, success, don't go, oh, you know, I'll do this and I'll do that. And when I do this, I'll become that. When I become this, be ready yesterday. 
And speaking of yesterday, many yesterdays ago, back in the early 60s in Sioux City, Iowa, in the winter, because we're about to be in the winter here, even though folks over there are coming into the summer, um, there was no you porn. Can you believe it? But it's true. But there was a little place called the Francis Canteen on Lower 4th Street. And they had a pinball machine. They had two pinball machines. And pinball, to my mom and dad, was somewhere between Satan and crack. And being Jewish, we didn't believe in Satan. And being the early 60s, crack hadn't been invented. But I think you know what I'm talking about. It was a vice. And the only way to play pinball machines was to get on your bike and go downtown. But of course, my mom wouldn't let me ride my bike that far. So get on the bus or go down with some friends, find your way downtown. Or while your mom was at um, the Francis building or Yonkers or any of the, uh, you know, in the Badgerill building for a dentist appointment with um, Dr. Pickle. There, there's a whole story there for those of you who know the Dr. Pickle story. And uh, they, they were in a pickle. But... Um, we could wander down to Lower Fourth and play pinball. And it was a nickel. And it was just epic. And I can't even remember what the machine was, but in the gathering dark of winter, uh, the machine all lit up with all the bells and whistles and everything like that. I was quite addicted to pinball. And so was Steve Fagenbaum, my good friend, and uh, a couple of others. But we also knew, it was a myth at first, but we also knew from our older brothers and I mean, maybe somebody's parents, I don't know, I'm not naming names, that behind the counter at Francis Canteen, which was manned by Mort Smith and Elsie and um, their brother Sid, uh, Sid who could find golf balls anywhere at any time in the water, in the dark. But that there behind the counter, lo and behold, were adult magazines. Now, adult magazines in the 60s were ostensibly pretty tame by today's standards. Not that I would know, but, you know, I read up a lot. And um, it was just kind of a mythical place to play pinball down there and know the things that were going on. I always wanted to get the guts to save up the money. And I didn't even know how much money I needed to, you know, get a magazine from Mort or LC and find find out what life life was all about but i'd stand there and that machine and i'd be icy and snow outside you know three feet of snow and i had these horrible rubber galoshes with these metal clips that tightened i think they came from god i don't know bomb guards or some place but you know they would just freeze shut and stuff like that and then I, eventually i'd find my way home and uh you could not get these clips off. Your hands, your fingers would bleed. It was like cutting razor blades with your hands and have to sit there on the on the porch. And my mom would take the uh, clips off of the galoshes and get my feet out. I quite remember that. It was quite a loving thing to have your mom get your boots off in the winter. And then you could be in your little socks where you had like, you know, three pairs of socks on, all with the name Bobby Galinsky sewed inside, I'm sure. And come inside and it was warm and nice and food was on the table. And those were very nice times. Those were winters I remember. And then she'd ask, where have you been? And I said, oh, I've been with Steve and some of the boys, maybe David Cohn, a couple of others. And then my mom would kind of grill me. Well, should be, you know, might want to stay away from Sid. Morton and Elsie are nice. But uh, she wasn't happy about the Francis Canteen. It wasn't her favorite place for me. And that story just kind of came to me this morning, just out, out of the blue, it got quite cold here the other day. It got down to like seven degrees, which is just about freezing. And my hands are always freezing. I've always had freezing hands and feet since I was a kid. And I just remember those galoshes and taking my gloves off for my mittens and trying to get those ice crusted clips off and just, you know, hating life. But I bought the warmest mittens ever the other day and walked on the beach with them. They're electric blue Patagonia mittens. They are so cool. But my hands were warm for the entire time. It's like, like the first time in my life my hands have been warm on a cold day. And it just kind of, you know, neuron-specific ramifications of nanotechnology jumped quark back light years into being a kid with those boots. And at 
Francis Canteen. Thought that'd be nice to go visit now. Play a little pinball. Share that with you. It's just funny how those things stick with you because when I was at University of Colorado and I was skiing, skiing almost every day, I guess I kind of forgot about going to classes by and large for a while. Every time I'd snap on my boots and my first ski boots were Hansen boots made in Boulder, Colorado. Um, <clears throat> they were just a solid one-piece molded shell and they had hot wax that was fitted to your feet. That was very, very aggressive nouveau in 1971, 72. But they had two big clips on the back and as soon as I'd bend down to fasten those clips or take them off at the end of the day, I'd think back of those galoshes and think of my mom. That's, it's just a strange association. And um, even now when I put on, I've got some uh, boots. Every time I fast them, think back to being a kid. Funny how things stay with you. So, waxing on on that, on a beautiful May Day in 2020. Well, on this day, this May Day, what else happened around the world in history? Well, many of you might remember 1958. On this day, the first Dracula film starring Christopher Lee as the eponymous vampire, directed by Terry Fisher, was the first Hammer horror film released. And Hammer films were why we went to the Uptown Cinema and the Hollywood Cinema. Um, in music, in 1979, The Cure, probably my all-time favorite band, released their debut album, Three Imaginary Boys, which was called Boys Don't Cry, here in Australia. And on May 8th, in sport, in 1984... The Soviet Union, those slippery, anti-Semitic, homophobic Cossack sluts, announced that it wouldn't participate in Los Angeles Summer Olympics in retaliation for the American boycott at the 1980 Moscow Olympics. And also, on this day in 1980, the World Health Organization, the WHO, the Know Nothing run by China, worthless organization, which actually had some value back then, announced that smallpox has been eradicated. So, so we now come to that favorite, favorite section. What's the podcaster wearing? So, you finally arrived. What the hell are you wearing? It's my ass-kicking outfit, bitch! Well, actually, today, the podcaster is wearing off-white in Valentino. Do you think Off-White is like the color? No, Off-White, which is the brand which was designed by Virgil Abloh. And Virgil Abloh is kind of a personal favorite because he's a very groovy guy. He's friends with Kanye West, did a lot of designs for his house. Then the two of them, Kanye West and Virgil Abloh, began an artistic collaboration that would launch Abloh's career in the founding Off-White. He is the first American of African descent to be artistic director at a French luxury fashion house and was named by Time magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world in 2018. This is a man that was a street kid in Chicago whose parents were from Ghana. And when he attended school, he became fascinated by a building on campus that was so inspiring to him, he decided to study architecture and then got into street art and street clothing design. And, and to think that a kid from the streets would end up as artistic fashion director of Louis Vuitton. It's just amazing. Stories like that absolutely amaze me and give me hope for the human spirit. Uh, on one hand, you can wake up in the morning, listen to Nancy Pelosi, and know there's no future for the world. But then again, you can read about this guy and, and look what he's done and realize that there is great hope for mankind. To me, it kind of harkens back to that wonderful scene in Full Metal Jacket when the commander corners Private Joker, played by Matthew Modine, and asks him why he's wearing a peace sign on his jacket. And Born to Kill is on his helmet. And he answers, I guess I would suggest... It has something to do with the duality of man, Colonel. Speaking of Nancy Pelosi and duplicitous left-wing people that would completely destroy the United States for a virus that only really attacks old people and only old people that are infirm by and large, so we may as well 
may as well stop serving alcohol. Take all the alcohol away too. And let's um, let's take cars away too. And then there'll be no more car accidents. And then we can just live in the Stone Age. That's about as far as I'm going to go on that one today because I would get really, really worked up about this. And as far as Stone Age, there's only one country I want in the Stone Age right now, and that is China. And I am very happy to pay a lot more for certain things. Yeah, I would go to, you know, Costco, Walmart, whatever, and get a light bulb that should cost $3 for like 50 cents and things that are made in China. And I'm willing, and I think we should all be willing to put them back in the Stone Age and buy products that are made from countries we can trust. And we're going to have to pay more. And what would you do? What's the first thing you're going to do when you get out of lockdown, so to speak? Um, my wife and I, we miss cafes madly. And here in um, the Untershar Führer's land, it looks like they're only going to allow cafes to have only a small portion of their normal patrons in there and close the bars so that people aren't congregating and things like this, which has all been proven that none of this has had any value. But um, that's another episode. But anyway, bearing that in mind, and that could be the law, and no one really wants to go to jail for a stupid argument like that, I think there should be a social distancing fee or tax, so so to speak. My wife actually came up with, with this one and uh, on one of our morning walks. So they've got fewer patrons. They, they've got to hire staff. They've got to keep the doors open. They've got to have a, you know, critical mass to be able to make it profitable. I think we're going to have to start all getting used to paying a little more money in cafes and bars and restaurants and things like that. It's just the way it is. It is the cost that we're going to have to bear for, for what has happened. One of the, the first things I want to do um, is have lunch with the King of Elwood. It was the last thing that uh, I did with uh, just before the um, lockdown. We had a beautiful lunch at the Elwood Bathers, great place on Elwood Beach, run by Joel, fantastic place. And we like to support the neighborhood. We like to support the Sons of Mary, uh, run by Tim and his brother, and Zoe at the front of the house, and uh, the Yacht Club, Royal Blight and Yacht Club, and the Pantry and all of their places. They're absolutely the best. And um, they've all been doing it tough, uh, very, very tough. And they deserve, they deserve a break today, so to speak. You deserve a break today. <laughs> Sorry, I just break in the song when I think of that jingle. And speaking of cafes and restaurants, a story that just came to me that I hadn't heard in a long, long time by watching an old Don Rickles YouTube. Now, those of you that are millennials, thank you for listening, but it does, you, you do concern me. Uh, but I appreciate that you're taking the time to listen here because, you know, you're living at home anyway and don't have a job, but that's fine. But uh, there used to be an amazing comedian named Don, Don Rickles. Don Rickles was like Louis C.K. and Anthony Jeselnik and Ricky Gervais times 50. In a time where you could do that, and make any kind of joke without being called racist or, you know, bad human being or whatever. Of course he offended people. That was the whole idea. That was the, the whole reason people paid zillions of dollars to go to his shows in Las Vegas. And Don Rickles, as watched on YouTube, was relaying an amazing little joke about the guy on a first date with his girlfriend. And they're in a posh Vegas restaurant. And this is a true story. This is a 100% true story. And the guy's trying to impress his girlfriend. And they see Frank Sinatra across the room at a table at the um, Sands Hotel, which is no longer in Vegas. One of the great original six Vegas hotels, which is gone. Very sad. And he's, his, his girlfriend's hot. He, he's totally into her. And he's got to do anything to impress her. And, uh, you know, she says, oh, it's Frank Sinatra across the room says, yeah, yeah, I know. I see Frank all the time. She goes, no way. Yeah, yeah, I see Frank all the time. And we go back a long way. I, and, you know, to be honest, he he usually is kind of a bit of a pain in the in the ass. He bothers me a lot. Great singer, don't get me wrong. New York, New York. But no, uh, no. She says, oh, 
I'd love to meet him. He says, no, no, really, you don't want to meet him. He goes, you don't know Frank Sinatra. He goes, baby, let me tell you, I know Frank Sinatra. And invariably, he'll probably come over here and hassle us while we're trying to eat. Anyway, she says, well, I don't believe you. She excuses herself and goes to the powder room. Anyway, as soon as she departs, this guy jumps up from the table, flies ass across the room, and he's approaching Sinatra's table so fast the bodyguards stand up. And he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Mr. Sinatra, Mr. Sinatra, hi. My name is Jim, and I'm a huge fan. My parents were fans. I'm fan. And he goes, you're a man. You're, you know, you're a ladies' man. I'm just struggling right now with this first date with this girl. She's in the bathroom. She's going to be out in seconds. I would do anything. I would do anything. If you just, on your way out, you'd come by my table. I'm over there, points to the table, and just kind of come by and say, hey, Jim, how you doing on the way out? Um, it would just impress her. And, you know, that would be, that'd be a deal, deal sealer with me. And he goes, gives him a thumbs up. The guy tears ass back to the table, sits down. Date comes out of the bathroom, walks past the Sinatra table, looks, gets to their table and sits down, pulls up her chair. She goes, oh, well, I guess we'll find out if Frank Sinatra and you really know each other, won't we? She's kind of cooled off a bit. It's been a great date. Well, anyway, they're having their meal and they see the Sinatra table get up, finish her meal and head over this way. And the guy goes, oh, yeah, here he comes. Yeah, here he comes to Hasselwing. She has no idea. Anyway, as they get to the table, Sinatra reaches over, taps him on the shoulder and goes, Jim, Jim, how have you been? Haven't seen you in forever. And the guy turns around and goes, fuck off, Frank. I'm having dinner. Anyway, Don Rickles, one of my fondest memories as a kid, and Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, um, all, all the icons of that time, that kinder, gentler time, the halcyon days of our youth, when there were no social justice warriors, there were no p virtue signaling corporations, there was no canceling, there was none of this messed up, you know what. Anyway, you're getting the theme of today's show, True Stories, Wondrous Stories. And I did want to touch on one more Hollywood story I flagged at the beginning uh, about the new Tom Hardy film on Al Capone. And this goes back to 2013. This is from originally Mike Fleming and Deadline Hollywood, uh, who I absolutely used to love to read. Actually, one of my absolute fave, fave people is Scott Feinberg at The Hollywood Reporter. Um, his Feinberg forecast and podcasts and articles and tweets. He, he's absolutely one of the best. You, you get the straight talk on Hollywood from him without all the politics. Anyway, back in 2013, great story. Um, young fella who was a waiter in a New York restaurant and was having a lot of problems, a lot of problems, personal problems. And um, I guess, to make a long story short, so the story says, um, was about ready to call it quits on on life itself. And he'd written a couple of scripts and nothing was happening and paying his bills as a waiter. Anyway, to make a long story short, how things can happen in the in the blink of an eye. And uh, Warner Brothers made a deal with him. His name was Tom Shepard to rewrite a film called Cicero. And that film had Tom Hardy attached to play Al Capone and was a big studio project priority. And that was allegedly his his big break. But one of the coolest things about it was a follow-up story that um, was in Variety, is that not that this waiter got, and that there's nothing wrong with waiters. I love waiters. I used to be a waiter, and waiters deserve maximum respect. There's nothing, no one you should be nicer to than waitstaff ever, as we know from episode one and, and uh, my feelings on life itself. But... Not only was this guy just elated to have his big break and get a deal, a Tom Hardy film, which you've just seen the trailers for ostensibly just the last week have dropped, but he didn't ask for a zillion dollars. He didn't ask for all these things like that. All he asked for was for a friend of his, a girlfriend at the restaurant who was doing it tough, way, 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 way tougher than him if she could have a part or some type of participation 
in the movie. And I just love that selflessness. That 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 is what keeps the world going around. That's the the pattern of these stories today, whether they're humorous stories, true story, nevertheless, or the Dallas Buyers Club saga, or this, that right around the corner is someone who can be your champion, and you've got to pay it forward and be someone else's champion too. I love that. I hope you do too. And if you don't, then you can fuck off. Before we go into the wrap-up portion of this, I really am grateful for a lot of people who always help me along the way and people who inspire me, things like that. I get a lot of material um, just online, through life, through experiences, through seminars, workshops of people I've met for 40, 50, 60 years, and of late people that I'm I'm reading that really inspire me. Uh, as I said before, Scott Feinberg at The Hollywood Reporter, Jeff Jacoby and Neil Swidey at the Boston Globe. Jeff Jacoby is uh, similar politics, probably a bit nicer. Uh, you, ought, you ought to read him. Read Jeff Jacoby. Uh, Neil Swidey wrote an amazing article on this 27-year property dispute saga with neighbors that I flagged in the first episode that uh, I'll, I'll talk about at some uh, future, future point, which is one of the, the greatest stories ever about bad neighbors. And uh, Dan Bongino, if you don't listen to Dan Bongino, you're, you're missing something. This guy used to be a Secret Service agent. He was a cop before then. And uh, he has a, a podcast, Dan Bongino. And he's on uh, YouTube and he's on Fox News every now and then. He's just amazing. He is an amazing guy. He always would say, tip of the hat to, well, I, I tip my hat to, to him in his show. And then again, there's some things where I don't have to thank anybody because I thought of it, like my scripts or stories and the dinner party. Now, the dinner party debuted on this podcast 21 days ago. Uh, as I said, I'd been practicing this in one form or another for over 30 years. And all I asked some of you to do is if you'd give that a try for 21 days, build a habit, break a habit, especially for visualization and just changing attitude. This isn't a preachy show. Yeah, I'm told I preach from time to time. I said, if you got nothing to do and you want to spend five or 10 minutes each night or morning or whatever, and just try something kind of groovy and see if it works, doesn't cost anything, um, to try it for 21 days. So I'd be curious to get, I've already had some feedback from a couple of folks that think it's amazing. And I haven't had any negative feedback, but I know some of you are thinking it out there. So, um, Let's see how we've gone. Doing the dinner party of late, kind of as I'm semi-retired and as I'm getting older and thinking about mortality, it, it makes me sort of look, look back rather than looking forward. Um, things that I still want to do versus the things that I've, I've let go. But I do think back often, and especially now, to a meeting I had with Michael Douglas, the actor and producer, many, many years ago when I got my first break, so to speak. And he was talking about characters and something that his dad, the late Kirk Douglas, had always told him. He says, people only care about characters that you want to be, fuck, or fight. Be, fuck, or fight. Think about that. Characters that you want to be, like an Atticus Finch, um, a hero, uh, a stalwart, someone someone that has great, great honor, someone that you want to fuck, excuse me, language, but someone, you know, uh, people go, women go to the films to see a matinee idol that, that they like, whether it would have been Cary Grant or Rock Hudson or, or Tom Cruise now or Russell Crowe or, you know, Colin Farrell, whoever it is, the guy's going to see, whether it's, you know, Emily Bunt, Blunt or you know, Emma Watson or Charlize Theron or, you know, Halle Berry, whatever floats your boat. And the last one, fight. We all love a good villain, whether it's Loki in the Marvel comics or uh, Ernst Blofeld in the James Bond films. That's, that's the type of characters that we break people down to. People we either want to be, people we want to romance with, or people we want, want to kill. And when you look at writing characters that way, as a writer, maybe some of you are writers, developing stories, whatever, that that 
puts it into really the triangle of what life is. And, and where do you fall in that? Um, I always wanted to be the people that you want to be. Um, but invariably, sometimes I'm the person you want to fight. So it does suggest the complexity. And that's why that dinner party exercise means so much to me, just because it, it brings out everything about us. And I will never, ever forget that advice. And these days, it's very easy to find the last two, people you want to sleep with, people you want to kill. It's very hard to find the first one, people you want to be. There's very few sports heroes anymore, or movie heroes, or po political heroes, n nil, or, you know, science heroes. There are, where are all of our heroes? Maybe we're, maybe we're those heroes waiting to come out and be somebody else's heroes. Who knows? And I think about that a lot. Are we heroes to our wives, our husbands, our children, our friends, to strangers? Are we heroes to ourselves when we look in the mirror? So just have a think. And remember, it's groovy and nice to be important, but it's far, far more important to be nice. Have an epic week. We'll see you then.